a few years ago, right after B.B. King died, whose birthday would have been today, Daniel Silliman of the Washington Post wrote a column entitled, How the Church Gave B.B. King the Blues. And here's a part of that column. B.B. King first learned music from the African-American churches of the Mississippi Delta. Church was not only a warm spiritual experience, the blues man once said, reflecting on his childhood. It was exciting entertainment. It was where you could go and sit by a pretty girl, and the music would get all over your body, and it made me want to jump. Over the years, King talked about how his first experiences with music were connected to the church. He also talked about how his relationship to church was deeply conflicted. The son of Mississippi sharecroppers, King started singing spirituals with his mother when he was four years old. That was about the time his father left the family. His mother wanted him to grow up to be a preacher. But five years later, she died, and nine-year-old King kept singing. The King family had been Baptist. One of my favorite, being raised Baptist, one of my favorite lines in this column. The Baptist musical tastes were more traditional than the young King liked. If you were in the Baptist church, he said, they didn't want you bringing no guitar in. So I didn't really dig the Baptist church too much. But the pastor of the local church of God in Christ, on the other hand, played a Sears and Roebuck silver tone guitar. And in some ways, the church of God in Christ was far more conservative than the Baptist, but not when it came to music. And one fateful Sunday, the Pentecostal preacher there taught King to play three basic chords on that silver tone guitar, and King was converted. He volunteered to be a janitor at the church so he could spend time with the instruments. He volunteered to teach the kids younger than him Sunday school so he could be at the church more often. He got the nickname Church Boy, but he didn't care. King soon found, however, more thrilling music outside the walls of the church. They were exciting, the blues were, but they felt wrong. I was ashamed, he said. Because the people around us were very religious. The blues became a cause of conflict and contention because people started calling it the devil's music. But what went unnoticed by many, but not by King, was that the blues was based on the same rhythms as the religious music they were singing in church. So King kept playing religious music, but he started bringing the blues into church. And Billy, this is just for us. His group got the reputation for being rebellious and a little too inappropriate for the church house. King, at the same time, was growing frustrated with religious audience for his own reasons. When he played for church people, they would always be very polite, King said. And they would say to me, son, you're mighty good. Keep it up. You're going to be great one day. God bless you. But they never put anything in the hat. <laughs> but when I played the blues, people would tip you. They would buy you a beer. And on one occasion, King recalled singing a deeply spiritual song in a bar and changed the word, my Lord, to my baby and got the biggest tip of his life. <laughs> and after that, I was done with church music. 
And he was even done with Christianity. And he says, and now you know why I'm a blues singer. B.B. King never made it back to the church. He was more at home in juke joints and bars and taverns than church sanctuaries because he said he felt more welcome in the former rather than the latter. He remembered the church of his childhood fondly and said in an interview years later that sanctified people are the singingest people. And he recalls how that reverend, Reverend Archie Fair, first taught him to play guitar. And he said that when he performed for Pope John Paul II in 1997, he said the Pope reminded him of that Mississippi Pentecostal preacher because I felt I could count on those two people to get a message to God if I needed to. But in the end, he felt that religious faith and his personal faith were actually opposing forces and couldn't be reconciled. You hear some of that in the song we just sang this morning, Losing My Faith in You. It was written by King in 1969. And it's definitely one of those songs where my baby could be replaced with my Lord or my church even. There was a time I believed in you and there was nothing wrong you could ever do. But you've changed and you know it's true. I'm losing the faith that I had in you. Or maybe the lyrics of Sir Gordon Matthew Thomas Sumner, better known as Sting. You could say that I've lost my faith in science and progress. You could say I've lost my belief in the Holy Church. Michael Spite of REM. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight losing my religion. Famous musicians are not the only ones who struggle. Everyone faces their doubts for sure. Many of the garden variety and some which are much more serious. Each person will get entangled in his or her own personal crisis of faith at some point, be it the dark night of the soul or the slow deconstruction of what he or she has always believed. And there are these shattering episodes in our life, usually arrived at only after much time and much struggle, where external faith and internal conscience can't seem to be reconciled. Here are the beliefs, the tenets, the confessions of my faith community, and yet here is my internal compass, my own moorings at which I have arrived at. External faith often is the product of history, the experience of others, those who have gone before us, and conscience is this personal experience, personal thinking, feelings, and intuitions that we have. So I can maybe ask it like this. There are these standards that my faith community upholds. And for the most part, I'm down with those. I'm good with those. But sometimes there is this calling of conscience deep within me that calls me beyond those. How do I hold good, healthy faith together with good conscience without losing one or the other? How do I stay rooted in faith while remaining true to my own conscience and my own convictions without, like B.B. King, giving up altogether on the church? Or like Sting or Michael Stipe, losing faith 
completely. Because friends, that is what I have witnessed in so many. And to some degree what I've experienced. That faith can become so uncompromising and so unwelcoming that it leaves no place for some who simply do more than just disagree that by conscience they cannot remain in that place. If I compromise my conscience, I become a drone, a sheep, checking my brains at the door and going along with whatever my particular church says. It's not unlike a new priest who arrives at his parish and meeting one of the older members of the church, the priest asks him, well, what is it that you believe? And the man says, I believe everything that the Holy Church believes. Okay, so the priest says, what does the Holy Church believe? And the man says, that's simple. The Holy Church believes everything that I believe. And that's about the extent of it sometimes. This circular reasoning. So, if I forsake belief, if I forsake faith, I become completely unmoored, adrift, lost at sea. The word that the Apostle Paul uses is shipwreck. You have this tension between conscience and faith. And if they're not in sync, if they're not reconciled with each other, your faith can be shipwrecked. This is 1 Timothy 1, 15-19, where Paul uses that word. Writing to Timothy, he says, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. And what a beautiful phrase this is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus would use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. Paul is so excited about his own confession of faith right there that he has to add what appears to be a benediction or an early church hymn right there. And then he finally gets around. Paul does this a lot, by the way. There are whole sections, chapters and chapters in Paul's letters that are asides. He just gets lost in his thoughts and you're reading along and you're in chapter 4 somewhere and things are going great, he never comes back to that thought to chapter 10 because of things like this. Timothy, my son, here are my instructions to you based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier. May they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Cling to your faith in Christ. Keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their conscience. And as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. What a phrase. Here is Paul holding the tension of conscience and faith together. Cling to your faith in Christ, but keep your conscience clear. If you deliberately violate your conscience, you shipwreck your faith. When we think about conscience, we usually think about that little voice inside of us, right? If you go back to the old cartoons, cartoon characters at some juncture in his or her life, and he, has to, he or she has to make a decision, oh, what am I going to do? Suddenly, poof, poof, 
On one shoulder sits the little devil. On the other shoulder sits this angel. And they're talking and, you know, in his ears and he's trying to decide what to do. And we often think in the Western mind that the conscience is the angel, the better angel. Don't do that. Don't do that sending out all these alarms. And conscience certainly means that. The way Paul uses the word is two Greek words wonderfully fused as one. And the word means senses brought together. And what Paul is saying is this. Your conscience, your internal mooring, your compass that you have in your life is the product of all that you have sensed and experienced. Your own thoughts, your own experiences, your own ruminations, your own gut, those all combine to speak to, to us. And you know, you, you do talk to yourself, right? I'm not, I'm not the only one. You talk to yourself? As long as you're not answering yourselves. Or are, well, no, strike that. Some of us will have to answer ourselves, struggle with ourselves. Often that is conscience. What is the relationship then between this internal guidance system and the external guidance system of faith? What is Paul talking about? How do we keep those in sync? Well, I think it means two things. First, if conscience and faith aren't in sync, you are going to be an obvious, hulking hypocrite without one iota of credibility. That's the first meaning. I mean, think about it. Jesus never drafted a doctrinal statement or implemented a creed for the church to follow. That came much later. What Jesus gave was a way of life, an ethic He provided an example for how we relate to God and to others. The Christian faith isn't built on religious declarations. It's built on Jesus. And what did Jesus teach us? You know. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Simplicity, humility, justice, mercy, peace, forgiveness, generosity, trust, sacrifice. A few years ago when the Dalai Lama said, loving kindness is my religion, he was closer to being a Christian at that point than many churchgoers. Because that sums up the ethic of Jesus. So if your conscience takes you away from this, you are in danger of shipwrecking the faith. The word Paul uses for shipwreck, by the way, is where we get our word nauseous. You're going to make a sick mess out of this thing. You will shipwreck the faith. If we profess faith, but our actions and personal beliefs prove otherwise. When we hate instead of love. When we do unto others before they can do it to us. When we complicate and bloviate and cheat others or allow others to be cheated. When we are tight-fisted, self-centered, unmerciful, unyielding, unforgiving, unwilling to sacrifice, to bleed, or to surrender. That is not the way of Jesus. 
It runs the profession of faith aground. It is shipwrecked because one's internal guidance, the conscience, does not match what one claims to believe. Now, it's easy right here, I guess, to descend into, you know, moralizing. That kind of trite finger-pointing and nitpicking and preaching at people. Policing everyone's actions, threatening to church them. And if you don't know this, church can be used as a verb. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Because you grew up maybe in churches where people got churched. That means they were disciplined in some way. They were thrown out or excommunicated because they didn't act properly. My own... (laughs) My own grandfather was churched one time because he was seen, and I quote, putting out trot lines on the river on the Sabbath morning. And he had to answer publicly for it in front of the whole church. I mean, never mind that he was a public drunk and nearly killed my grandmother multiple times, (laughs) destroyed all manner of property was constantly involved in gun and knife fights. That didn't seem to be a problem. But breaking the Sabbath to throw out a couple trot lines, the Lord have mercy on his soul. Now, at the risk of being misunderstood, what undermines the faith isn't fishing on Sunday. Oh, God, do not take that out of context. You who are here just happen to be here today and not on the boat. But what (laughs) undermines the faith is not fishing On Sunday, it's not making mistakes. It's not having disagreements within the body of Christ. It's not losing one's cool. It's not about making yourself out to be a jackass. If it was, we would all be in trouble. What undermines and shipwrecks the faith, robbing it of all credibility, is this summary by the great Brennan Manning. I got that slide. Thank you, they're asleep in the back. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus Christ with their lips, walk out the door, and deny Him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. We can't glorify greed and bless arrogance and turn away from injustice, and be vengeful or hateful and unmerciful, and be expected to be taken seriously as people of faith. We can't be eager for violence, be easily angered and more easily offended, give free reign to every physical desire, and proudly say, but I'm with Jesus. We can't lie and cheat and cut corners and take advantage of other people and always fight for our rights and our privileges and what we deserve when we follow one who did not cling to his rights but gave up all privileges for the sake of becoming a slave. Jesus lived and taught humility, justice, mercy, peace, generosity. He was marked in life and in death by forgiveness, grace, and sacrificial, unselfish love. We can't take His values and organize ourselves in the opposite direction and call it Christianity. It can't be done. I remember a few years ago when Anne Rice, the vampire author, 
made a very public departure from Christianity. Here are her words. Today, I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being a Christian or to being a part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For ten years I have tried. I have failed. My conscience will allow nothing else. Now some defended her, some attacked her, some were confused by her, some took the opportunity to preach her a pretty good sermon. But how many, I wonder, actually listened to what she was saying? She was making a valid point and gave voice to thousands, if not millions, of our neighbors who have arrived at the same conclusion. That the disconnect between Jesus and the church that bears His name is of such dissonance that it can no longer be held together in their minds. Take a simple sponge and dip it in the water. What does it do? Soaks up the water. Take that sponge out of the water. Squeeze it. What happens? The water comes out. Individual Christians and the church as a whole must be a sponge immersed in the love and the way of Jesus. So that when we leave the church house and go out into the world and are inevitably squeezed by the world, that it is the love and way of Jesus that comes out. You follow that. But so many people in their own experiences have found that the church is not so much a sponge as it is a stone. And it does not soak up the grace and way and love of God so that when we are pressed out in this world, we have nothing to give but what the world already And it doesn't matter if it's B.B. King or Ann Rice or your neighbors Josh and Kimberly. Some have had this experience where the church has been so difficult. More of a hindrance than a help. That conscience and faith seem to have splintered apart. And can't be held together. I know scores and scores of people. Who have unplugged from the institutional church. And some left angry. Some left hurt. And some lost faith completely. And some, a great many, left, now hear me clearly, left the church to save what little faith they had left. As absurd as that sounds. Because it had become such a hurtful environment that they could not stay there. What do we do for folks? How do we reach out to folks who have found faith in the church to be a hindrance rather than a home? How do we help people who want to be true and cling to Christ and love God and serve their neighbors But the church gets in the way of that rather than showing them how to do that. Are those not valid questions? 
Well, like any good cliffhanger, I cannot answer those questions today. But if you'll come back next week, I'll pick up right there.